You're listening to Athletes the Other Side, a podcast that explores the path sportsmen and women tread when they're not competing in the sporting arena. With your host, Ben Nichols. Well, welcome back to Athletes the Other Side, this podcast that explores the unsung sides of athletes' lives. There are many chapters away from the sporting field. And so here we go of episode 11. I'm Ben Nichols, formerly of the World Anti-Doping Agency, Commonwealth Games Federation, Dubai Tennis Championships and more. And today in this 11th adventure, I'm speaking to an athlete who is as versatile as he is effervescent and as committed as he is charming. And I think it's fair to say that today he's better known for his career away from sport than his career in it. And that's no mean feat because his career in sport saw him reach the pinnacle nationally as it became British tennis number one in 1986 and secured a career high world number 80 on the ATP men's tour. He reached an Australian Open final and mixed doubles in 1988, won three ATP tour men's doubles tournaments and went on to represent his country in the Davis Cup and at two Olympic Games, Seoul and Barcelona. Retiring from the men's game in 1992, he's gone on to lead a stellar broadcast career for Sky, BBC, ITV and now LBC Radio. Most memorably to many British viewers will be his role as presenter of breakfast television show GMTV for 10 years. Today, he hosts the breakfast morning talk show at weekends for LBC Radio. And he'll also be known to so many for his BBC tennis commentary, having commentated on all men's Wimbledon single finals since 2003. And if that's not enough, he's played on the Senior Tennis Tour too, partnering with the likes of John McEnroe and Tim Henman. So if you don't recognise him yet, you soon will when you hear his dulcet tones. Ladies and gentlemen, my guest for episode 11 is none other than Andrew Castle. Andrew, thanks so much for joining us for Athletes the Other Side. Uh, great to great to see you. How are you keeping during these strange times? Well, it's very nice to see you as well, Ben. I mean, I think probably the last time we saw each other was um, at Queen's Club uh, years ago. I mean, how many years ago did you leave uh, the, the organisation of, uh, of Queen's? Because you went on to Wider after that. I know it's yeah. supposed to be yeah. about me, but what about you? Well, many, many years ago, I've got a, a slightly fresher memory on that, Andrew, of, uh, of seeing you at a, a christening uh, for oh, a course. goddaughter of yours. <laughs> oh, of course, I'm goddaughter to one of your nieces. There you go. No, hey. God, of course, you know, of course, that's right. Do you know what? That, that, I, that, after about an hour and a half of that wonderful uh, occasion, I was definitely, I'd had a few. I didn't drive home from that. That was really good. <laughs> um, anyway, how are you? How are you finding these times? We're obviously almost a year into into the strangest oh uh, pandemics. Um, a lot of people working from home, so you know, socially, obviously, we're all a little bit cooped up. But you know, with your work at LBC, yeah. at least you're getting out to a, a sense of a little bit of normality professionally, anyway. So, how are you finding this chapter? Gosh, I find some days I feel very um, downbeat and very downtrodden, and I'm full of anxiety. Um, and you know, just just a little down. I'm sleeping very very well because we you know we moved, and uh, and we have some peace and quiet now. Not in London anymore, out in in Surrey. So very glad to have open space. Of course, it's a well trodden path to to head out of London, and, and in fact, that has been what the property market has done. Is people are looking to uh, to get out and get some outside space because if we are going to be cooped up, locked up, sealed up or whatever it is, you know, we, we, we all need to see the sky now and again, and we're allowed to go for a walk. But I mean, I can't imagine what it would be like to be in a big town or a big city at the moment, possibly in a, you know, in, in a two bed, one bed, two bed flat, possibly with children. Uh, I mean, it really must be terrible for a lot of people. Uh, and as you say, I'm lucky enough to work 
still with a little bit of BBC Tennis, but mainly um, LBC. So I have a voice, Ben, and that's that's uh, at this point something of a privilege and and also a great relief because um, I, I do find some days are very difficult. Well, we'll come on to LBC a bit more later on, but I just want to touch on it here because I think it, you know. It, to a certain extent, some people can kind of block out the noise going on with COVID and just get on with their lives as best they can. But obviously, you know, professionally, you're going in and you're hearing a great deal of the public mood through through the radio show. Does that offer you a sort of stark reminder of, you know, the mood of the nation for, for the UK and what's going on out there in terms of the, you know, there's different views on COVID, aren't there? Some are more economically focused and focusing on, on the economy, saying we need to open up, we need to get moving, you know, and some are saying this is all about health and protecting lives and that alone. So where do you where do you sit with all these differing points of view? And, and well, I'm, I'm, I'm sick of just about every point of view, to be honest. I mean, you know, since since March last year, our lives have changed forever and our circumstances have. And uh, no matter if, you know, if you if you're blessed with children or cursed, whichever way you want to look at it, mm. you know, you worry about them. Um, you know, sandwich generation is uh, is worried about elder parents as well. We don't have that issue anymore. We we suffered uh, the loss of my father-in-law um, in March, and mm-hmm. the funeral was in April during lockdown. So that was weird. Um, so you know, we're all we've all been unbelievably badly affected by all of this, and we don't even know how badly affected we've been yet because you know, as unemployment figures are are released. You know, I think even today the uh, Office for National T- Statistics said that it's up to five percent, but of course that's nothing compared to what it's going to be because everyone's fur. I mean, a lot of people are furloughed at the moment. You know, a lot of companies are going to sort of survive, 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 and then one day they're not, and that one day might be soon. So, you know, there's an awful lot of people who are suffering greatly. I really am not one of them, and nor is the family. Really, we, you know, we're all just trying to survive. But you know, when it comes to the wider argument, where do I sit? I'm still working it out, Ben. I, I have to be honest. I can speak to an A&E doctor, often do, or somebody from the Faculty of Intensive Care Medicine or all the rock star epidemiologists and virologists you could name. I've interviewed every one of them, uh, people from the, you know, the, the, the vaccination, uh, the Joint Vaccination Centre, um, SPIM, SPIB, cabinet ministers. And I'm still none the wiser exactly as to what the best course of action is. One thing I am, I get, I, I, I do get slightly frazzled when I hear we're going to be led by the science. <laughs> Just yeah. the very expression. I'm like a Pavlovian dog. I get sort of like, oh, no, not again. Because yeah. ultimately, the science is one thing. Um, and, and that's disputable in terms of it's always an argument, the science. Um, mm. Mm. And, 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 but, but it's the politicians who have to make the judgments about the way we go forward. And, and have they got everything right? Absolutely not. But have they got everything wrong that they're accused of by some? Also, absolutely not. So here I am, ambivalent, sitting on the fence, just praying somehow that we, we, we get out of this um, in as positive a way as possible. Because, you know, things are still fracturing, be it independence for Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland, everybody sort of, yeah. you know, don't forget we had Brexit. Yeah, you know, I don't want to take you through a full LBC program, but I run the kind of the we run the full gamut, and uh, and at the end of it, I'm dehydrated and generally speaking, you know, upset and exhilarated, if that makes sense. 
Yeah, well, we don't want to be dehydrated just yet. We've got a little <laughs> bit of way to go. So, no, no. Uh, but, but just on that, I think it's, you know, putting the health aspect of COVID aside, we all agree, you know, cost on human life, absolutely paramount. Looking at the more philosophical outtake, if you can, of COVID as we hopefully emerge um, this year, you know, woe betide the politician that would ever say it. But certainly in, in conversations you have with people, they say, you know what, in a, in, a, in a strange way, is this a bit of a calling for us to slow down? Is this good for us to be outside our comfort zone, trying different things which we would never try normally because we're forced to with our businesses, with our interactions with people, etc. So people talk about there being a new normal, and I'm, I'm a bit sick of that phrase um, already, but you know, people talk about it, it will be a different world. It is in some ways, health aside, is this actually of benefit to us? Because we will, as human beings, we will slow down in this always-on world. Well, what a lovely thought. Um, no, but that's a great deal of positivity to what you just said uh, mm. about about adjusting, changing, um, advancing in different ways because we're forced into change. And there are myriad examples throughout the years, generally speaking, war advancing, uh, you know, the world in, uh, technologically. Um, bringing women into the workplace was, you know, First and Second World War. This was, you know... This was a, a, a positive or came to seen. So came to be seen as a positive, all of these things. So I understand that, um, you know, there will be a, there will be advances. And I think one thing that we really do have to look at is the speed that we're living our lives at the consumption of social media, particularly for the young. And I know how you have two children um, four and under and you are going to face vastly different challenges harnessing uh, so social media, their emotions, their self-perception with with media, which is going to be even more intrusive. Do I think things are going to slow down? Actually, I think things may speed up after this, sadly, because mm. look at the way we are talking to each other now. You know, you're in you're you're in you know a garage somewhere lovely. I'm I'm somewhere lovely looking out of a window, and it's almost as though we're in the same space together, but we yeah. don't have the human interaction in terms of you know physical i couldn't shake your hand um give you a big hug i can't do it i can't stare into your eyes to see what you're you're feeling i can't take those cues as easily as i otherwise would so are we going to speed up or are we going to slow down absolutely crucial question and and i think fascinating that, that you asked that for me personally i'm 57 years of age i definitely am slowing down but that's just nature as much as the, the pandemic. I need to slow down. I want to slow down because I don't want to get to 70 years of age, potentially be sort of, you know, hurting a bit, bit unfit, not having the appetite to go out into the world. So, so I'm slowing down anyway. The fascinating thing mm -hmm. is what the 20s and the 30 year olds are going to do. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, I'm I'm uh, I'm 37. 20 years between us. Who'd who'd have thought it there? <laughs> but, um, well, you, you know, it I, looks like there's 50 years between us. You look like uh, a very very <laughs> young. You look like a primary school boy, fresh and fit <laughs> in the costume. Oh, I don't feel it. Uh, but look, I mean, it, it is interesting. You know, we've all been quite reflective, I think, during this whole pandemic. And and I and I look at things. You know, I'm of that age where yes, I've had a lot of social media growing up to a certain extent but not my whole life you know it's it's kind of from the 20s onwards it was you know rampant if I can say that but actually growing up today it's completely part of your life so will that now shift as parents sort of think hang on there's bigger priorities there's more to life than just being in front of a screen I think that we're all informed by our own personal circumstances again I think it's fascinating because I was thinking back as you're asking these as we're pursuing this area 
you've got a four-year-old and a one-year-old and you're happily married and you're living somewhere lovely and you've earned pretty well and you've got on in your career and you have an education and a supportive wider family. These are all things which are of huge benefit. So it's very, very typical, if I may say so, of you and for me to, because we have the means, the education, perhaps we're, perhaps we're articulate, we have opportunity, um, you know, and we've done stuff before, you know, we can pull on all of that and we can be positive. There's also some fat on the bone. There's a bit of money around. And let's not be let's let's not be, be silly about it. You do need that to, to make changes in your life at, at times. So for all of these reasons, aren't we lucky? And I, uh, so, so do I, I, I do I focus on that or do I focus on those like I started by saying people who are stuck in flats, for goodness sake, or don't have access to Wi-Fi or even good food? And so, you know, I'm very, very torn either way. But if we're talking amongst each other, I think your attitude is fantastically positive and I'm delighted to hear it. Yeah, and I I think, you know, it is easy to get, yeah, you're wrapped up in your own personal circumstances and you think, you know, surely everyone can can think like this. Of course they can't. But I think there are, um, my my outtake from it and from the probably limited conversations I've had, there are, you know, there are different groups and factions from this pandemic in terms of how we think and how we've reacted to it. There is the sense of victimhood. It's out to get me. I feel on the back foot, aren't I unfortunate, those sort of attitudes. And then there are those, and I'm not just talking about people who are hugely privileged, who have financial means, etc. Those who have yeah. an attitude that thinks, you know what, this isn't ideal, but actually we've had it pretty good. We haven't had world wars in our generations, in our lifetimes. We're going to have to figure out a way to get out of this through business, whatever it may be, and ride this out. And that attitude, you know, that's not there's no discrimination financially with that attitude that comes from within. And I think, you know, are we going to start to see I think we're going to see some interesting case studies, if I can call them that, with people coming out thinking I'm not rich, I'm not well off. But I thought I thought I better get on and and take a risk and try something. Oh, I think I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I think. uh necessity is the mother of invention is a delightful phrase and a lot of people will invent and pursue new avenues and and succeed and a lot of people are going to get left by the wayside and and so you know it depends which stories you'd like to focus on as i say i like the positivity that you bring and i like the can-do attitude rather than looking back look forward how can i make the best of this i think is absolutely superb i I, I don't think the majority of people in any Western democracy, including the United Kingdom, really uh, fully understand uh, the interconnectedness of the world. Wealth creators, entrepreneurs, risk takers. Um, mm. I don't think, it, you know, I, I, I hate the United Kingdom for one thing. And it's always been this way. We resent other people's success too much compared to some other countries, notably the United States. I agree. Um, I haven't lived there for, for quite some time. But, you know, if Rishi Sunak in the budget in March decides to uh, to to go after people's um, wealth in any way, if he if he puts um, measures in place that stop people taking risk uh, or that make our place post-Brexit, uh, the United Kingdom, a more difficult place to do business, excepting that he's got to raise revenue. Mm. Um, I think it would be a real shame and a missed opportunity. We have to understand that we're competing with other countries in the world, let alone Europe. Let's make ourselves look attractive, get money coming in, get people coming in who, who want to build business, make it a place where you know, risk takers and entrepreneurs can build wealth and build wealth for others as well. Uh, and just one caveat to that, if I can, mm. Uh, mm. and that would and that would be that you know uh, they they 
I'm not saying it's like a free pass on tax because there are too many, there's too much resentment built up over the years because too many are not paying what they should pay. So, you know, you've got to be aware of those loopholes as well. But, you know, on the, but I think it should be a welcoming place. And I hope it's a welcoming place for people to do business after that March budget. I don't think Sunak yeah. is stupid. Yeah, <laughs> no, I agree. And there's lots we could get our teeth into there. I, I want to um, pivot to to use an awful phrase from this pandemic as well, the word pivot, um, to a totally different uh, period of your life, uh, which we'll skim through if we can, but I think it's important. So starting with your childhood, you grew up in in, in Surrey, um, went on no, I, to- No, I, I, I actually, I sort of did. Sort of did, okay. I grew up in Somerset. Surrey and Somerset, and actually in Somerset, of course, you know, attended a very well-known sporting school, Millfield, which we both did. Oh, uh, funnily did enough, you go there as well. I did, but uh, yeah, look at my sporting career, Andrew. It never quite took which off. House, which house were you in? Oh, <laughs> uh, one called Shapwick. Do you rem- oh remember my that? God. One? Of course, I do. I didn't realise <laughs> that you went to Millfield. I actually went to Hewish's in uh, Taunton first, which is a grammar school. I passed my eleven plus. I did one year there. Then I went on scholarship into the third year at Millfield because Mr. Atkinson, who was my headmaster, um, he offered my mum a full scholarship in person. And we had no money. It was a fish and chip shop that I was raised in. And so so I, I went from first year to third year, which is what yeah, year six to year eight. So I missed out year seven completely. And I went to Millfield on a full scholarship and I was a day boy. And it and, and looking back, you know, it was bit, it was a bridge enabled me to continue to playing to play tennis. Although it was a very unhappy time in my life, but I hope you had a good time there. Well, well, this is a this is a niche topic now, but no, Millfield. I had huge ambitions to go there. My sister, as you know well, Emily was was there, great tennis player herself. Uh, I always, you know, as a much younger brother, I always aspired to go there. I did go there. Didn't have a great time actually myself. So I look at it with kind of. Mixed views. What an amazing school. Great facilities, but you can't you can't buy atmosphere. And it was, you know, for me, the wrong fit. I mean, me, me too. I found it very, very hard there. And, and I because yeah. I, but, I, but at that stage in my life, then I wouldn't have been happy anywhere. Exactly. And hindsight. Hindsight's a great thing. Um, but Millfield, obviously great sporting school. I, what I want to get to here is, um, you know, you went to Millfield. At what stage did you really start knowing that tennis was a future career for you? Um, so perhaps take us through that, those kind of teen years. And then, you know, what led to you, you went, of course, out to out to Kansas. Tell us about that patch of your life before you turned okay. pro. So so my mum and dad got divorced. At the age of 13, I went to Millfield. 14, 13, 14, and 15 years of age. I did my O-levels at the age of 15. The, the, the day one of my O-levels, GCSEs as, O-levels as was, GCSEs now, day one, um, I left home with my, where, uh, where my mum and dad were, and I came back to a house where it was mum and Colin, uh, who was the man that she was to go on and marry and be very happy with for 23 years. There was an enormous amount of disruption in my life at that time. Um, we went from having a fish and chip shop to uh, living in a, in a in a council house, and and so that's where I was going to Millfield from in what was pretty tough part of of Taunton. So, mm. kind of a, a a sort of a strange thing. Tennis really building me the bridge. It it allowed me to be an imposter in two places at one time. Um, got through the O, le- o levels, came back to Hewish's Grammar School in Taunton, which was fantastic for me because I got great friends in Taunton. I learned about girls, motorbikes, smoking cigarettes, um, doing stuff that you just do when you're when you're a kid. Didn't spend too much time doing my A-levels, but I had friendships. 
and I will never forget them. So I'm actually from Taunton in my heart and soul, and mm -hmm. we had a great time. I was still playing tennis, and pr but nowhere near enough. I was losing ground probably on everybody in the world that I would end up competing with. Mm -hmm. I don't even know how. I, I mean, I, my competitive instinct and my ability to make other people play worse, you know, these are two, two great strengths, really. <laughs> Um, I'm just very competitive. I won plenty of matches just about, but the tennis was not, I was quite self-motivated, but didn't really have any direction. And nobody from the LTA was helping. Nobody else really knew what to do to, to, to help me. The LTA decided I wasn't the right type in those days, which made me sick and still does. And I'm still pissed off about it. Um, and so uh, at the age of 17, I'd made the final of the nationals under 18 somehow. And my mum wrote 50 letters to American universities and we got three or four replies in those days you had to write a letter and mm -hmm. ACV and send it off got three or four replies looking back actually from two or three very good schools who were interested in taking me on like Texas Christian Southern Methodist SMU mm -hmm. uh, TC these are great schools um, but I saw Seminole Junior College in Florida the coach was called Larry Castle and it was in Florida and, and, we, and I went there and it was a junior college it's like a tech yeah. and on day one of arrival in Florida I didn't even know where I was flying to you know, you just, I was 17 years of age with a pudding bowl haircut, left my girlfriend and my motorcycle behind and all my mates and just went. I yeah. wouldn't recommend that. But you know what? It just happened. And it was a brilliant, brilliant year. I worked my ass off, got probably 100% better, got fit, got pounded by our coach, who's a tough guy, really had, you know, we won the national championship, we won the state championship. Unbelie it's unbelievable. You can't retrace it. Then I got up on a scholarship to Wichita State, which I took up because we played them when they were on their way to nationals. They were a big school. And, 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 and so I ended up with three and a half years in Wichita. So there's a sort of a potted, sort of a potted history. How do you know which step to take, Ben? Yeah, well, th this is it. And, you know, I, th I feel like this these days we have so many choices, you know, ab abundant kind of choices in life, which is great. Don't get me wrong, but it almost makes things more confusing. It is those stories, like you say, you wouldn't recommend it these days, perhaps going off what, you, you know, and doing what you did. But what a story you've got to tell. Look at where you are today. And the, that's yeah. what life is really about, is it's trying things, isn't it? Making mistakes along right. the way. It's absolutely about trying. It's about best effort. Um I mean, looking back, the mistakes, oh, my God, the poor judgment. I mean, uh, unbelievable. I mean, in those days, my mum used to write me a letter. I was terribly homesick for a year, cried a great deal. It broke me, and, and, but, but remade me. And, and I will never forget the lessons of, of, of self-reliance and, um, you know, inner strength that, that you learn. You never forget that stuff. When you're really, really lonely and a long way from home, Mm. that is that's good you know yeah, afterwards it's good. it's good at the time it's not and i'd like to thank genesis and pink floyd and deep purple for getting me through that time as well <laughs> <laughs> well i hope they're all listening in and then after the states you know moving fast track into your tennis career yeah career high of, of british number one you know world number 80 if i'm if i'm right in thinking you know by anyone's standards that's a fantastic career how do you look back on the tennis career as a whole fondly shoulda coulda woulda <laughs> uh, I, I've got to be honest, it's incredible, you know, to have, to have done, to, to have taken the path that I took and then to get to 80 in the world in singles, top 50 doubles, to, to make a Grand Slam final, which was a mixed in Australia, and mm. incidentally we had a match point, things like that. I look back, won, a, you know, won some tour events in doubles, made, made a, a, a tour final in singles, went to two Olympics. None of this, none of this 
had seemed even remotely likely or possible. Um, and really, given my where I came from, I look back and I'm very proud of it. What yeah. could I have been, given my ability to play, to compete, my hands? Uh, what could it? What could it have been? I could have been a top twenty singles player. Um, look, looking back, had I operated properly as a professional from 1986 to 87, 88, in that period, if I had really, if I had pushed on and done the right things there, if I'd had the right guidance and help, I'm not saying I was easy, but but if if I had done things differently there, top 50 was certainly still possible, and so was top 30. I can I can I can look back I, as a commentator. I can say you know, looking evaluating me as a unit, my strengths and weaknesses. That's what it could have been. So there is something of uh, a regret about not having had a shot at the pros and actually been a working member of the tour. Uh, it would have been nice to have done a little better. But I, I mean, we're probably all like that, Ben. We're yeah. Probably- Absolutely. And, you know, you know, we hear it a lot, don't we? Is regret, is regret a wasted energy? Because, you know, we, we don't know at the time. And years later, we're, we're drawing comparisons between our wiser selves and um, and what we knew then. You know, I I guess what I want to touch on in the tennis as well is, again, looking back, what, what do you think you learned from that time that actually today you think that's due to my tennis career? What have you know, in broadcasting? What oh, do you God. I, I mean, pro sport is just a fantastic background for for anybody. In fact, sport is. I should I should um, I should say a, a wider. You know, being active is 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 vital because you know you learn you learn what your strengths and your weaknesses are. You learn what your vulnerabilities and your frailties are. And actually, until you get broken a little bit not totally, not bullied, not, not smashed to pieces, but until you break a bit, until you know, how can you improve, get better, strive, um, and get where you want to be if, if you don't have a go and fail a few times? Yeah. I do, not, I do not understand our attitude towards sport in schools in the UK at all. I'm not talking about your paid schools. I'm talking mm. about, you know, bog standard, state step sector, the academic, uh, the, the ac- academics are so totally prioritized over everything else. What about the building of character? What, yeah. about, what about the understanding of one's strengths and weaknesses and frailties, vulnerabilities? Like I said, what about that? I mean, you yeah. ask yourself some internal questions when you push yourself hard physically and you know joy. The, the physic, when, when you are, when you become a physical person, when you understand yourself and that wonderful feeling of being soaked in endorphins when it's all over, I think that we, we, we just continue generation after generation to miss a trick with, with, with that. Um, so, so that would be the way I would feel about the sport is that, you know, looking, what's it given me in life? I know when I'm looking at somebody real. Uh, or, or, or somebody that's authentic, somebody that's really got something, or when somebody's bluffing me, I feel like I've um, had those senses sharpened by mm. by playing sport. Interesting, interesting. You mentioned there, you know, the idea of experiencing things and taking some knocks, making mistakes, learning from those as much as the you know the successes and and perhaps this culture in the UK of you know being being risk averse, if you like, not making those mistakes and sort of. Do you feel I'm not trying to kind of make it simplistic, but do you feel one of the biggest factors for that shift over time in this country is? 
well, I guess amongst the younger generations, this this fear of sort of being called out on social media or or being labelled something or being, you know, you are that. You know, life is full of nuance, as we know. That is the reality. But the way we read about it is nuance is disappearing. You know, you are it's black or white. It's this or that. You know, we're scared of being put in a a box and being told that's who you are and and by the way there's no way out you know mistakes how do you redeem yourself from mistakes i think is the question i, I, ask I think it's um, i think again a very good point about social media and about about i mean if, if you can't make mistakes and uh without ridicule if you can't if you can't sort of fall flat on your face um without there being a forever sort of public stamp of disapproval that's awful i think mm-hmm. this is particularly I mean, obviously, more and more research being done in this area. But I mean, you know, social media is like a blooming experiment conducted on this generation, yeah, um, yeah. which is, you know, potentially tragic. But it might be all right in the end. I hope so. I mm. think particularly difficult for young women and comparisons with other young women. I think it's particularly destructive. Having had two daughters myself, I think, uh, you know, I, from what I've seen, it's worse for girls than boys. Um, mm. But, you know, but boys, again, are quite quiet about their suffering. I mean, you know, still waters run deep. So, um, I, I, yeah, I know I, I think par- parents, I don't think for a moment that you will, uh, I don't know yet, don't know, who knows, but I don't think for a moment that you'll stop your two um, going out there and having a go at stuff. And, sure. and, I, and I've no doubt that when they come back, they're going to know they're in a safe and a healthy and a wonderful environment and they're going to be encouraged to do it and they're going to be just fine. But not, again, not everyone's got the benefit of two kind of, you know, a- a- active, smart parents and uh, who, who understand these sorts of things. But what, where risk averse culture has come from, very, very difficult to know. Um, perhaps public liability insurance isn't what it used to be. Kind yeah. of conquers at school for Christ. Yeah, sake. well, the the other the other side of the Atlantic, maybe you know, it's come from come from the states. People, you know, people say that's one one direction, and yeah. and, and we well, kind of, we've embraced it. Yeah. Australia was the same in the late eighties and early nineties. Australia really changed. They just became really uptight. Couldn't go anywhere without there being some rules, and you got to do this or that. And we got this impression of Australia being a certain way. Well, it's it's not the way it's ever portrayed. So who knows where it's come from? But Jesus, we've got to break it. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Uh, moving on from tennis, you know, uh, the side of your career, you're you know still in today broadcasting. I think, you know, the, the aim of this podcast has generally been, I've spoken to some great athletes, <laughs> athletes who may be recently retired, who have gone on to things that people don't know about because they've hung up their boots. They're in a new career. They have great things to offer, but they're not in the public eye anymore. Um, you know, conversely, if I can put it politely with you, a lot of people know you better for your broadcasting career than perhaps what you did in the tennis court. I don't get that. When I, they go, you know, on LBC, they say, well, I didn't know you were that Andrew Castle that, that played tennis. Or when I'm on the, and, and the other thing is I get, when I start interviewing somebody and it may be something that somebody doesn't like to hear, they send me messages saying, why don't you stick, stick to tennis, you twat? And stuff like nice. that, it's a, and yeah. it's all that, and far worse. So yeah. you, so you, so you get all that. And then when I do the tennis, they say, you know, shut up. Your ranking was only eighty in the world, and I'm like, I can't, I can't win. No, you can't win. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm imagining, you know, those, the the December end of year Albert Hall crowds, you know, people pointing out saying, "There's that, there's that bloke off GMTV," you know. Oh my god! <laughs> I'm sure you've had that. I did have that, and I, I had. Um, one of my favourite memories of there's that bloke from GMTV was the London Marathon 2008. I got to 25 miles and I was feeling absolutely crap. And and um, and, and I was just I was still trying to get under four hours. 
and and I went um, and I was I knocked into the bloke on my right. I'd been feeling bad for a while, and 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 I and and I sort of leant on him and I went, oh sorry about that. And then and then I and then I hit a woman on my left and I barged into her and I was like, oh this is definitely not right. So I walked and I walked sideways to a barrier, um, right in the shadow of Big Ben. And um, and the last thing somebody said to me before I went unconscious was, oh look, there's that bloke from GMTV. And that was the, and that was the last thing until I woke up in the ambulance. And oh. you know it is it is funny. It's like some people know me for some things, but you know whatever. Everyone's entitled. Yeah, no, absolutely. And take us through, you know, post tennis into broadcasting. How did that come about? Had you been? I think one of the interesting things for for athletes listening is, you know, tran- transferable skills. What you can what you can do in in tandem with your sporting career that you'll then use when you hang up your boots. So, were you kind of nurturing broadcast skills? Was you know, whilst you were playing tennis, was that something you wanted to do, or did tennis end and you thought, right, what now? And and a door opened. What was the I was playing in Berlin, and I believe we had uh, a tennis tournament in Berlin. In uh, might was it 1991? Um, and I was playing. Me and my partner, we beat. I think we actually managed to win a match uh, against Ivanisevic <laughs> and, and Javier Sanchez, I believe. Anyway, we'd won that. I think I'd lost the singles. Um, but Bill Threlfall and Jerry Williams, who were great great uh, commentators rich voice yeah. spitfire and hurricane pilot bill thrillful remember remember bill yeah darling bill um and and jerry williams who was always a magnificent supporter of mine excellent first class journalist passion for what he did be it, you know whatever he covered he covered it he wanted the story and he was a gent as well um they they asked me if i wanted to come up jerry did i asked me um if I wanted to come up to the commentary box later on that evening, which meant going away, coming back again and, and doing, uh, I think it was Kevin Curran versus Luis Matar. Would I like to do some commentary? Now, I have always known that if somebody is asking me for an opinion, giving me a mic or putting me on camera, A, it's good fun, but B, it's an opportunity. You know, anybody that says no to an interview if at the beginning of a career or anybody that doesn't nurture um, media interest and make time is absolutely stupid. You've got to be out there. And so I picked up the mic and I did the match and I absolutely loved it because there's one thing. It's an awful lot easier talking about it than doing it. Okay, (laughs) so there you are. You know, and I've always overthought anyway. So here I've got a, I've got a, a, a handheld mic. I'm working with these two great guys. I'm doing this match. I had no idea there was such a thing as a gallery on who was in it. But mm. at, the, at that time, you know, Sky had just got underway. There was all the B Sky B. And it was, I don't even know what was going on. All I just was doing was my job. And I loved it. And they really liked it too. So a year later, an opportunity came up to spend some time with Subaka in the studio at Sky. Mm-hmm. And, and and I would be sort of permanent guest with Sue and, and also commentate as well. So that's it. So I ended up in a car park in Isleworth, which passed for Sky Sports uh, a year <laughs> later. The um, glamour. Yeah, you know, and, and, and that's it. And Sue and I worked, God, days, hours, hours, hours together. Uh, and Bill and Jerry. And we, and we were the first sort of, you know, satellite coverage of, of, of tennis. So there was my opportunity. Did I know what was ahead? No. But I didn't say no. I said yes. And so, that's the right thing to do. Have a go. Absolutely. That's the moral of the story. And and obviously kind of having having kind of put a put a foot into sports broadcasting, I guess that 
opened doors for what was eventually GMTV and broader broader programs. Importantly, um, when when I worked at Sky, the, the hours were very very long. Great though, because you know all I, I just equate how good would I have had to have done the tennis court to make the money. And at this point, Sophia is uh, pregnant, or have we got Georgie with us? Georgie, picture behind. Um, so you know, at this point, this, if, if there's anything that's ever going to sharpen your mind, it's going to be uh, there's a baby on the way, right? You understand this, and yeah. you know, I need an income. Now, yeah. what am I going to what am I going to do? I mean, I hadn't got any grand plan here, but it was like, you know, I can't you can't play tennis forever. Not with this ranking, mm. uh, 28 years of age and, and a baby at home. Mm. So I worked very hard at that tennis, uh, genuinely. Um, now, Sue Barker left the BBC to uh, left the sky to go to the Beeb. Was it two years later? We'd worked a lot, you know, over the time. And they borrowed up a match of the day with Harry Carpenter at the BBC. And the mm-hmm. BBC had been looking for a great female broadcaster, a great broadcaster um, for ages. So they'd offer, they got, and of course, they offered her this full time job and she turned, it, 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 she had a magnificent BBC career, still does have. So, yeah. so, so I thought they were going to get another presenter to come in and do the tennis and I, would kill, and I would still sit exactly where I was. But actually, what happened is I got a call from uh, Dave, who's now running, was running Fox in America now, who's ahead of Sky Sports at the time. What's his name? Um, and he said, oh, mate, you're next. Uh, and he says, you're going to be the presenter. And I was like, oh, my God. No idea. Never worn an earpiece, never taken the instructions like, like that. I found that very intimidating. But I learned, I learned how to do that. And after another couple of years grinding away, they offered me British basketball, which was live in the arenas no studio absolute yeah. mayhem with great people we had an unbelievable team and a brilliant producer called sue ashworth and we covered british basketball like you couldn't believe like it was like everything was the olympic 100 meter final we had a magazine program beforehand we had producers out doing stories on it and then we covered the entire thing and after that they gave me like nascar the daytona 500 i remember doing mm-hmm. that that took me a week of coverage and eventually it came down to they offered me the golf on Sky, which was the big moment. And because that's that was a very important sport for them. So I presented that European tour and PGA tour in America. And so after eight years, can, I know this is I know I'm going on a bit. It was important that, you know, no, you've got to put yourself in the arena. You do not say no. You say yes to these things and you crap yourself and you pour with sweat and you fill your armpits. You ruin suits and shirts trying to be the best you can be at this you research you 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 know you really do work at it um as well as the craft you learn being on air but but another thing i said yes to was to go along to wimbledon at five o'clock in the morning in fact not even wimbledon it was opposite at wimbledon park golf course over the road over church road would i go along for gmtv and do a series of hits into the program for them when they threw to me and i was like yeah of course i will I mean, you know, John Lloyd said no to it, and I said yes. So I went along for GMTV, wore this earpiece, and was doing these hits in. And and that that was the that was that was the year, sort of 1998, 99, somewhere around there. And and there was one link that got me the job on GMTV, and and that one link, all it was was Penny Smith had thrown down from the news desk, and I was to run through a couple of pages of graphics, order play, say a few bits and bobs deliver it straight to camera and, and, and come back. And 
the story that was on before me was absolutely horrendous. Involved, I believe, um, uh, uh, it was multiple fatalities shooting of children in school, and uh, you know, it was horrendous. And I was listening to this news before they came to me. And I was like, I said, oh my god! I said, with the greatest of respect to everyone involved in the story beforehand, uh, yeah, let's talk tennis. Anyway, my the, the bloke at GMTV saw it. Who, and and decided there and then that they wanted me to present GMTV for that very for just for that moment. Now, if I hadn't done that link, or if I hadn't been there, if I had said no to getting up at four to be on site at five to do hits from six, um, I wouldn't have got that that that, that opportunity. To, yeah. to to anyway. So so there we are again. You know, you've got to you've got to be out there. You know, you've got to be whether it's shoveling bits of paper around, making yeah. tea for senior people. You may have a first in bloody PPE from Oxford or Cambridge, but listen, fella, yeah, you've got to go and grind it out because until yeah. you're through the doors, you're not through the doors. No, absolutely. Look, you're you're preaching to the converted here. I'm exactly on that wavelength. I'm yeah. all about, you know, I have a huge respect for uh, people that go out and get some scars on the along the way, who who tr- you know who who try it and and fail and and succeed, you know, in equal measure perhaps. But but they've got stories, they've got experiences, they've got a lot to impart to other people because they've taken those those scuffs and and you know it's a little bit that that kind of um, famous uh, Theodore Roosevelt quote, isn't it, about the you know it's better Credit. to be in the arena and the you know in the kind of the in the dust rather and, than those and, timid souls watching on. Correct. Yeah, you took the words out of my mouth. So rather than the armchair critics, you know, there's a lot of those out there. And and it's a little little bit like those kind of criticizing, you know, COVID and government response. I think it doesn't matter about your political allegiances. You go and do a better job, actually, is my very simple version is go go and have a go. You know, it's actually a lot of people criticizing without good grounds and just thinking it's, you know, it's within their everyone has an opinion, but within their kind of expertise to to criticize where things are wrong. And actually, everyone, everyone's doing their best is, is kind of my my yeah. my take on it you know yeah, yeah. Um, and uh so you know i i i digress but i think it's you know a, a lot of this podcast what, what i'm hearing it's about exp- you know experience in life it's about trying things it's about um you know going down avenues and perhaps realizing that wasn't right but that gave you an answer to try something else so it's I, you know, there's ben, a lot I of think, life lessons I travel i think travel is quite uh quite a helpful sort of area to to help you to think clearly about what's important and what isn't and what you're after yeah. and what you're not. And I, I have I have found that, you know, I mean, the old expression is a cliche, really, travel broadens the mind. But, I mean, you really do disappear up your own fundament with it at times when you're staring out of a window a long way from home. And I think, uh, and I, and I think that's been helpful. In fact, individual sports, and now I've never seen a study done on this, individual sports and those involved in them, are, have produced some pretty high achieving people outside of sport afterwards. I mean, there are people who have gone from, you know, individual sports careers to running big business. I mean, you see it all the time. That could be that tennis is still a fairly poncy sport, fairly expensive to yeah. play. So you're yeah. likely to come from a nice middle class background with a bit of money in the, you know, in the bank and all the rest of it. So you can pursue opportunities knowing that you're not going to be starving a week later. Sure. But, you know, it's interesting that that is the case. And um, one day I might research that a little heavier. Yeah, actually, that's a slight tangent, but actually an interesting thing. I, I've always thought on that, you know, and, and kind of, you know, does tennis lends itself to, you know, certainly perception wise, a middle class demographic, those of financial means, etc. Yeah. But then, you know, you look at countries, you look at the Balkan countries, former Yugoslavia, where a huge swathe of kind of amazing players came out, you know, perhaps, uh, perhaps um, encouraged by, you know, 
I didn't mind Goran Ivanisevic, who, of course, led to a whole, you know, a kind of flurry of Croatian stars. And then we saw Djokovic and, and Serbs come through. That, to me, is no accident that those have been through a generation of, you know, coming out of war, really had to strive. They haven't had university, perhaps, to fall back on or comfortable jobs to fall back on. I'm, I'm, gen- I'm generalizing, but there must be, something, must be something of in course. there. But standing on your own two feet is, is one thing. You know, look at Serena and Venus. I mean, that is an incredible story. I mean, you know, yeah. from, you know, from a, from a, a, a you know, an, a difficult, um, you know, a, a difficult background. Same thing with the uh, largely the Eastern European, the, you know, a lot of young women coming out. Now, were they forced by parents? Well, maybe, you know, maybe their parents did, did push them hard. But, you know, if you don't have a love for the game, you soon will disappear. Um, yeah. But, but actually, you know, the opportunities have been out there. You know, you'd be stupid not to take advantage of them. And talking of opportunities, GMTV, you know, that that clearly opened doors to Strictly Come Dancing. You know, how did how did that come about? Uh, you know, co- coaching, co- coaching politicians, prime ministers, et cetera. You know, tell us a bit about the, the doors that opened from GMTV. Oh. And, and obviously your attitude made you think I'm going to go through these doors and have a go and, and well, do the things. When when uh, when when GMTV happened, you know, definitely. Uh, yeah, just it's a different world. I mean, I, I, I really didn't feel worthy of, of sitting there and doing the subjects that I had. And the training was non-existent. I mean, it's incredible to think just going on air and just sort of, you know, plonk, go. And guess what? The autocue broke for the first half an hour of my very first show. I could not believe it. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't really know what was expected. Uh, I had always done sport before. So there was a journalistic um, background that I brought to a degree, but I didn't know anything about uh what I was about to go into. And I found myself flailing around for quite some time. And I'm very grateful that they sort of stuck with me because um, uh, I, I certainly didn't feel very natural doing that. I settled in, but it takes takes time. I, I don't know what I could have done to prepare better, but it was a bit sink or swimish, uh, which is not entirely my fault. Um, <sighs> but I but I would but when they call and they say things like, well, we, you know, do you want to go on Strictly Come Dancing? How difficult to say no, not the money. Yeah not the money it's 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 about god uh it's that i think it's still probably the best show on tv i think i'm a celebrity is amazing my four-year-old's glued to strictly come dancing so you know oh great it's for everyone it's a fantastic show because you could sit there as a family and enjoy it and tell you what the the dancing nowadays the standard they come on like (laughs) most of them look unbelievable right, right right away Thank God, you know, there were some hoofers like me around in my year and <laughs> I had the GMTV vote to, uh, to, to keep me in for a few weeks. Um, but that was a fantastic uh, experience. But I've, I've, I've got to be honest with you, because I was doing GMTV in the morning and that all day, I, 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 I didn't have much left at, at the end yeah. of it. You know, trouble is at the end of a GMTV, you don't have much left anyway. You know, you, you're pretty tired at the end of it. You've been up at 3.30, you've researched the night before. And then to go and do the dancing thing was really, you know, tough on Ola, who was who was my partner trying to teach me this thing. And, you know, there were, there were a couple of good dances, but there, there was a couple of horrors. But just to be around Bruce Forsyth, for instance, and, and to, yeah. to just to be around the whole rehearsals and... And the, I mean, it's a well-oiled, massive machine and the costumes and everything else. If I did it now, I'd do it very differently, actually. I'd have an awful lot more fun. I was still trying to achieve. I should have been smiling more and having a better time and realizing <laughs> yeah. that I was a complete idiot straight away rather than trying hard to be better. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Uh, 
LBC, obviously, you know, different radio rather than television. Um, tell us about how that came about and, and, and the lessons you learned from being on radio rather than on, on people's television sets. 2010, GMTV finished and they, they relaunched um, and changed everything, which was a very hard time for everybody. There was a great deal of uncertainty in the two years leading up to, uh, to the end of GMTV. We were being, you know, there was half truths and God knows what. I remember turning up at Gatwick one time we were going on holiday as a family and, uh, you know, very early in the morning, picture on the front page, the mirror was a piece of burnt toast in the background. And there was four faces, one of which was mine on the front said, their toast, as if anybody cares, but it said their toast. So, so apparently Ben Shepherd, Kate Garraway, myself and Emma Crosby were mm. going to be fired. And that was the end of it. But, you know, see, this is what you live with, these, te- these rubbish leaks and crap spoken. And, and, yeah. God, and of course, well, if I am going to be fired, what am I going to do? You know, kids in school, uh, house to pay for, uh, you know what it's like. So, so you know, you live with all these sorts of things. Anyway, it all came, it all finished in 2010, and that was the end of that. Um, and from 2010 onwards, for, for a couple of years, I pursued two or three different things. Was it 2012? I had a meeting. My agent, Richard Thompson, took me down to meet James Rear, who is um, uh, head of Global now. And yeah. we sat in Leicester Square and he just uh, and, 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 and said, you know, do you like radio? What do you think of radio? And, and Richard was and I said, I really like it because it's intimate. You know, it's just one. It's just a, it's become a little different now. But it used to be just voice. Now there's a high, high digital uh, you know, HD, uh, high definition cameras everywhere and all the rest. So it's rather different. Mm. But radio is beautiful because it's a voice only. It's very intimate. You don't, it, there's not a little faffing with, uh, with, with TV and that, that you get with TV. So anyway, I had a go at it and I just, and I really liked it. I found it actually quite relaxing. It has changed yeah. uh, the nature of the subjects that we're doing now. But that started in 2013 with, uh, with them. I was obviously doing a lot of the tennis with the BBC and everything else. But mm. anyway, that's how long. And then, I, and then I went to Smooth. They said, do you want to do some you know, the music radio? And I said, absolutely. 2016, yeah. I did the breakfast show on Smooth for two years. Um, four hours every morning, starting at six, which was quite mm. debilitating. But, you know, a great gig and I really enjoyed it. And then they thought it was time to go back to LBC. So I, so I, so I did. Um, and that was, that's me. One of the things that strikes me, you know, about, uh, about radio, but about your morning show is, you know, you're having to field a cross section of pretty strong viewpoints of people out there that, you know, passion, passion is great, but I think in recent years, Brexit is the, you know, the, the sort of the, the symbol of this is diverging views. People with very strong opinions, people quite angry actually. And I think, you know, Brexit might be one thing, but actually, we're seeing it in all sorts. You know, I touched on it earlier, but this my observation is the this kind of idea of nuance, which is life is nuance. There's a lot of gray shades is, you know, people forget that. And we're seeing very stark opinions, people very much in opposition to things. How do you kind of, I guess, you know, stay emotionless during that? And how do you what's your view on on dealing? My, are, are you noticing that observation as well? Do you see a, a great kind of polarization in society? Oh, my God. Brexit in 2016. I woke up. I. I went to bed at 10 past 11 uh, the night before, and the last image I saw was that blonde woman on the shoulders of someone else. I think it was Sunderland. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she was going, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, okay, you know, good, you know, all, all good. But I, I knew 
that in Cameron, David Cameron knew that there was a major issue. He went to Europe and came back with nothing. And yeah. we're not stupid. Um, but I, I had not realized how influential Europe was in the way we lived our lives, the way we conducted business, because it hadn't affected me in any way that I had noticed. I didn't realize how inextricably linked and in some ways and in many ways quite heavily controlled, or at least that was the perception I had, by Europe we were. I didn't realize that we'd become so enmeshed. Mm. Now, I don't think other people did either. so when the vote came through the next day, I woke up and I said to uh, Sophia, I said, I said, you won't believe what's happened. She said, are we out? And I said, yes, we are. And I don't think, I mean, I just went, I said, well, that's all we're going to be talking about for five years. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that is kind of like, I just didn't realize how entwined we were. So you're, I think you, I think you're spot on. I think Brexit gave people the chance a bit like Trump in America to 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 kick the backsides of of those people who govern us a bit like a, a by-election you know mm-hmm. if you are you know if if you're the incumbent party you're gonna you know you're likely in midterm over here you're likely to get kicked and and i think this was uh, this was a kicking and you know i i don't necessarily regret it all now i think i'm just glad it's over yeah. i didn't vote to leave the european union knowing what i do now would i I mean, there's a bit of me that's quite mischievous, which says uh, yes, but I, I, I just wouldn't have wished um, us all to have gone through that because I think with, there are so many fissures and there is so much intolerance. And I have to be honest with you, I think most of the intolerance comes from the left, not the right. Yeah, well, that that's actually a nice segue to my next topic because that's, that's something else I've noticed and I'm not going to go into my own political uh, points of view. That's not the point of this podcast, but I certainly think, and I think it is in, in the mainstream discussion in the UK now, there is a huge culture war emerging uh if we can call it that i'm my prediction for what it's worth is the next election could well be on this yeah how you know kind of illiberalism versus liberalism you know the liberals becoming more illiberal uh the conservatives are becoming more liberal so you know that's kind of my and we're seeing you know lawrence fox we touched on that earlier you know this you know his political party for whatever it's worth it wouldn't crop up if this wasn't handled properly and people are very um there's a lot of polarization there's a lot of um I think a lot of anger out there about, you know, do we cherish free speech more than more than other things? So what's your view on this as a topic, not necessarily your views on where you stand on it, but your views on this as a topic, the free speech debate, where are we going with it? What are the Tories going to do? And, and is it going to be kind of the next battleground? Wow. Uh, well, I think I think Sakir Starmer is... Uh, it's going to be interesting what line he treads because the Labour Party is so far behind the 80 seat majority. They're so they're so far behind. They took such a stomping that um, it, it, it was said, you know, within hours of this election defeat, there's no chance that they can get voted in. Of course, there is absolutely every chance they could get voted in if they look reasonable and competent uh, on, on the economy. Uh, and if they hit the, the public mood and it's quite possible they will do so. Bearing in mind that Boris Johnson is completely, uh, you know, there to be shot at through his uh, mm. pa- pandemic, um, handling the pandemic and all the issues associated with it. So, uh, so, so, so politically, just sort of, you know, that's kind of, I think, where we are. The Liberal Democrats are just yeah. nowhere at the moment. Under Sir Ed Davey, they may get somewhere, we'll see. But whenever I interview them, I'm always left with a sort of feeling like, well, I don't know what you stand for. Where's the identity? Who are you? Um so they're not really a factor at the moment. Will they reemerge? So that's the political scene. Um, 
it was interesting. Biden's inauguration, if if we can sort of you know take us as the West, Biden's inauguration, they they preach. He preaches, and he's been eulogised for for preaching uh, uh, more more understanding and um, you know more reaching out to each other, more unity. It's the same stuff every single time. Of course, it is. It's exactly the message we all want to hear. But just don't forget, Corbyn's politics was kinder and gentler. Well, yeah. you know, talk to the Equalities and Human Rights uh, Commission uh, and look at the conclusions that they reached about how uh, you know tolerant um, the party that he was leading uh, is. If you're Jewish, for instance, you know, yeah. not 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 good for me. They don't like that, don't like that at all. And nor do the working class in the Red Wall. Thank you very mm-hmm. much. Mm-hmm. So so by so so Biden inauguration was interesting. He's saying reach out, but it's it, but it's really only on his terms. Yeah. You know, on the one hand, you condemn totally, rightly, those who invade the Capitol building. Um, what about uh, what about um, the Black Lives Matter movement when they riot? So one riot is OK and one riot is not OK. That will be the perception of, yeah. of, of, of people who already feel downtrodden and economically forgotten in the U.S., so what are you going to do about those high unemployment uh, figures? What are you going to do about making me, instead of just getting paid minimum wage, you know, be able to get ahead in life? Nobody's yeah. able to answer those questions. But 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 fundamentally, when it comes around to that that tolerance of other ideas, I just I just feel like there is a, especially in the media class, if you like, the the metropolitan elite, there is mm-hmm. this complete and utter failure to understand the trials and tribulations of the working class in, in the UK and the US. And I, and I just don't think they, 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 they know how to even address it and stop having contempt for people yeah. who are going about their lives, trying to have uh, a, a, a decent life and raise their children. It, it's, it's, um, it's, an, it's an awful thing to see. And I do think it's present. So yeah. look, that's just skirting the, uh, that's just skimming the surface of what I know. It, it, so, engage they should engage people should understand that just because you're engaging a subject doesn't mean to say that you are you know having one certain point of view or or another that you may think is acceptable or not it's like you can't even talk about some stuff now you can't tell me that for instance adding nine or ten million people to the economy over uh, to the country over 20 years hasn't hasn't strained public services in some areas um, and, and that hasn't led to a problem in, in, in housing in some areas. Now, either you're going to deal with those resentments, which, uh, you know, you don't want to talk to. Either you're going to deal with them or you're not. And if you don't, we'll smack you at the ballot box when we give you a chance, when you have a chance. You have to exactly. address these issues. Exactly. Address the issues rather than attack the people who are raising them. Not even maybe taking a point of view on them. They're raising them as public debate. No, that's what's happened. Just to finalise on the free speech kind of, uh, you know, debate, I think, yeah. you know, uh, there's a sort of fashionable narrative, if you like, amongst some media. And then there's, you know, people who are who call themselves liberals. Piers Morgan really kind of getting into this now and saying, hang on, let's have a d- discussion about extreme political correctness. You've got Matthew McConaughey in the States, you know, big actor saying there's a Hollywood bubble of people who take one point of view. And if you don't agree with that point of view, you know, you're outcast to an extent. You've got Ricky Gervais, who's a calls himself a left-wing comedian saying hang on a minute why are we not you know this, this is going too far this is the left kind of putting all sorts of discussions out of bound even for comedians there are people kind of who you wouldn't wouldn't call right wing who are now saying hang on this is going too far 
where does this end and how do we come to some sort of consensus? Well, I don't know. Uh, I think it's interesting, the rise of, uh, of, of, of the woke view being the only view that you can uh, put forward. I mean, one place that we would have to look at it in, in the UK, and it's not just a piece for the Daily Mail, surely, is, um, is, is universities. You know, one, one has to look at this. You know, you take Chaucer, for instance, off, like as happened last week, off, off, off the recommended reading list now. Um, and you put on, other, you know, you or you pull down a statue of Colston um, and, and and that is acceptable and cheered on or mm. you door paint on Winston Churchill. It's all it's all this the same. It's all the same area for me. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and how and how we respond to that is um, is important, because if you don't respond and engage in debate, what you get is the people who are around the Churchill to Churchill statue defending it. Now, if you want to see a rise in the right or the far right, particularly, if you want to see a right that the quickest way to do it is to try to gag the points of view which they yeah. legitimately and legally hold. Yeah. So, you know, let's let's yeah. get get the debate, uh, get get the debate open. We are all on this uh, same track. I yeah. think for me uh, to, to be to, to have a finger pointed at me, which I have had on air uh, and somebody to say that I um, I'm a person who has uh, had white privilege. I am white privilege. I, f I find that racist. Yeah. And, I, yeah, and, I, and I don't like it. And, and, you know, and I resent it. And, and I don't think any look at my story or, or any look at my background justifies anybody pointing the finger at me and said, I've had privilege. Now, there are plenty of others who will then say, well, you're ignorant. You didn't even know you had it. That is a, you know, it's, it's, it's something that you wouldn't have been conscious of because it's just one of these biases that people have had yeah. for you and against others without you realizing. Now, I'm prepared to listen to that because it's mm -hmm. my job to listen. But I, 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 I sort of um, resent having a finger pointed at me that way in a hostile manner. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think it's, you know, there's people who will see, you know, it's identity politics, it's called, isn't it? People who see things through the prism of you're male or you're female, you're, you're black or you're white, you know, it's seeing things through those labels and things through, uh, I hope, you know, I see things as colorblind, you know, I don't actually see the division as that person is a white rapper or a black rapper or whatever it may be. I see it as their, their kind of their abilities and their, their unique skills. I don't see, I don't, uh, identify with them because of certain characteristics i think is what i'm getting at whereas well, some that, do but that but that, well, that that's right i mean to be grouped together because of the characteristics that you that you hold uh, are you know is a definition of racism and um and i think uh, this is why the white privilege thing hurts it's not it's not because it's it's because it's unjust yeah that, that was one yeah. of the things that i was going to say right. by the way on biden and in the, in the inauguration and the whole woke thing i believe his first executive order was one around um, e equality, and uh, this is this is of course good news. But when it comes to uh, uh, gender identity, you shouldn't be discriminated on on the basis of your gender identity. was was a particularly worrying thing to have signed immediately. Uh, mm. You should look into that, that that first executive order. I fear for women's sport going forward. Let alone right, rape crisis centres safe spaces for women, women's refuges, you know, it's a denial of, for me, reality and what is going on out there and what may yeah. go on for, for, for women athletes now. 
If yeah. somebody who is born biologically male is able to compete with women at sport and should not be discriminated against, I'm afraid we may find that women, uh, biologically born women, are they called cis women, mm -hmm. uh, are, are, are going to be relegated to also rands. And it's already happening in one or two areas. So without thinking, perhaps, yeah. to the areas that we can stray into or politicians can, and I think make a hash of it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It's a complicated world and we're it all, is. I think, navigating through it as best we can. Uh, something I just want to tail off on, if if I can, before before we part ways is, yes. you know, post-COVID, if, if we are hopefully relatively near uh, a sort of semi-post-COVID state, what about the state of sport? What do you think... What's going to be different? You know, hopefully we see fans back in the stadium, etc. But what's going to be different in the long term that you think actually will be there to stay? Well, I, I, I think that the value of sport, and I, and I, and I put it in the, uh, the same category as all entertainment, I think what we've missed is, uh, uh, is, is what we're most looking forward to now. And I, and I think we'll all understand as we reflect on what we want to watch and what we don't want to watch. I think we'll reflect on... Uh, uh, on sport being even more important to us, I hope so. I'm, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I love all sport. Um, 18 finals at Wimbledon I've covered, and you know, one of the things that is uh, there's two players on the court, and there's the crowd, and it's really, really a, a big part of it. And you know, because the TV companies are running a whole lot of, sort of replays now, you know, you look back now and again. Um, I don't know, Brookline '99, they were playing the other day, and I was on that coverage over in Massachusetts and you know you remember the crowd you remember the the, the ooing and the ah ring and that that sense of everyone being in it together um so I I just long for people to have shared experiences again and not just in sport I miss obviously my daughter Georgie's involved in it but theatre as mm. well I'm desperate for live performance and something that is enriching and uplifting rather than kind of downbeat and depressing which is what this whole COVID yeah <laughs> uh, absolutely uh, and what's uh you know obviously busy with lbc at the moment what's next for for andrew castle do you think uh, in the next five well, five ten a years of, a bit of oh next five or ten i want to stay at yeah. that point and, uh, <laughs> and don't we all and i, and I just um uh, i mean the next few weeks obviously the australian open um which is which is taking place looking forward to doing a little bit of a uh, little bit of tennis all events all corporates all speeches everything like that has been completely finished um I do a couple of awards each year. I miss people. I miss celebrating their successes. Um, I, I, I hope to sort of get that going again. But in terms of the next five or 10 years, I, I don't see myself working a full-time job uh, beyond another three or four years. I don't know, though. I, I, absolutely, I have absolutely no idea. Um, I, I just want to sort of emerge from this and, and just hope as many people are okay as not, not mentally damaged. I don't really look forward too much i mean is it and also is it is it a bad thing ben to, to wake up and you know having a, a first thought being shall i have a gin and tonic at half past five or a glass of wine no that was that was me that that was me this morning i think uh no it's uh it, that's right and actually yeah another another taking is don't look too far ahead i think from covid we can't well, look too far ahead because we don't know and it and it's you know they they say it's good to be present in the now not not look look five ten years ahead because actually well, it doesn't help me let me yeah let me ask you a question then well, well what are your what are your plans i mean we're doing this um, nice chat together and all the rest of it tell tell people about what you're doing 
Well, yeah, from my perspective, I am uh, working yeah, working within the sports industry as a communications consultant. So I'm working uh, in the fairly niche area of anti-doping and integrity in sports. So working on the kind of the governance side, helping governing bodies, sports federations, working with a couple of Olympic and Paralympic athletes who are uh, kind of passionate about the athletes, athlete rights sort of movement, which is emerging. Um, and in terms of my view of, of where I go, I'm, I'm very much doing it week to week it's uh is there going to be a third child <laughs> is there going to be a third child depends who you ask in this household <laughs> <laughs> oh. uh, not for now i don't think but uh, we're just getting through this year but well, uh, to be honest there's a, a lot let me ask you this on um on um uh, the 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 anti-doping are we and if you don't want to answer this i completely understand that professionally but are we still are we winning or losing the battle against dishonest sport uh we are we are uh, on more of an even footing than we were 10 15 years ago um in in summary reason i'll say that is because a lot of people from outside of it will say oh how many tests are you doing you know you're doing out of competition in competition tests anti-doping is a far more kind of holistic view now where it's about investigations and whistleblowers and gathering evidence through police authorities and and bodies which kind of you know can can use a sort of carrot and stick approach to get people to you know share information on who's doping so it's a much more kind of collective exercise um you look at the russian doping scandal which was i was immersed with for four years at wada um out in out in montreal and it was you know that wasn't that wasn't positive and negative tested that that was very much you know as you, as i'm sure you know from the, the film icarus that was the the, the lab director in Moscow coming forward with information, WADA investigating, you know, it was a, it was, it was not about, um, you know, did, what was your urine test, you know, and that's, and that's the view of anti-doping. So it's much, there's much more kind of many more tools in the armory of the authorities to, to catch the dopers. I, I would say that the gap is closing a bit. That said, there's, you know, those that want to cheat the system are ever more sophisticated. They'll go to far flung, um, you know, uh, methods to, to, to beat the, the authorities. So it is a, it is a cat and mouse game. But I think the gap is closing and it's fascinating. I was uh, I was I was on the start line of the 1988 Olympic 100 meter final. I was sitting with a, a show jumper called David Broom, which you, you may or may not remember. He's much older than uh, than you. I can tell you that. Um, and he, he was on the Olympic team at the same time. And now we look back on that race, and you know, it's just um, you know when yeah, somebody takes away what you know what you're watching, and the fairness of 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 the of what you're watching you might there's just going to be no sport it's a vital battle that um, is being yeah. waged so you're doing great yeah well thank you um andrew do you have uh, a couple of last questions on this uh on this podcast it's yes. a small section i have in all all my episodes called the other side it's six oh, yeah. fire questions uh that's coming up next You're listening to Athletes The Other Side. Okay, welcome back. Um, Andrew, great to have you on the show today. Uh, just before we finish off, six quick fire questions to focus on the lighter Go side of it. life. Uh, number one, your favorite sporting moment of all time? Oh, God. Uh, 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 uh. 
I won uh, the Dunlop Masters in Japan and I served on match point out wide exactly where I wanted to and won. And that was cool for me. Who who are you playing? I was playing Chris Pridham, who was a Canadian yeah. uh, one, two or three, somewhere around there. And um, there's nothing quite like winning. So I, I'm happy with that. There you go. Uh, what's your favorite other side or non-sporting moment? Whatever. Ever. If you can pick one. <laughs> <laughs> okay i'll pick one strictly come dancing i was in the dance off with ola and i i actually did something that she'd been asking me for to do for the 12 weeks that we'd been dancing and that was drive my leg through and between her legs and drive excuse me but driving her around the floor and it's in, and it involves just relaxing and doing what becomes natural and that was a lovely moment because after 12 weeks of her yanking me around and trying to get me to get this, that was a moment. And it was during a dance off and she looked up, to, she looked up at me and she went hmm, in the middle of the dance off with 12 million people watching. And that was kind of a cool moment. Very cool. OK, what book are you reading at the moment? I'm reading an autobiography of my great great grandmother called Annie Besant, B-E-S-A-N-T. She's a very famous social reformer theosophist yeah. uh, and god knows how many other things and she founded the match girls oh she she led the match girls strike which was the first time unskilled labor had ever defeated management she went to india she was the first president of the indian national congress she's wow. a, she was a remarkable woman and so i'm reading that at the moment again good well i need to get myself a copy that sounds but she, she had a hell of a story by the sounds have, of it. have, a, have a look at annie besant gandhi was her first deputy as, wow Indian National Congress. Anyway, that's uh, that's Annie, Annie's worth um, having a read about. Uh, one surprising fact people might not know about you. <laughs> <laughs> keep well, keep it clean. <laughs> one one surprising fact. She's. I, I, I'm sensitive. There you go. Excellent. I, I take criticism very hard. It's it's really which, weird, isn't it? Which is tough, tough on radio. Not that people are talking about your points of view necessarily, but you have to express them to gauge, you know, to gauge the conversation. Yeah. So that that must I be. Mean, right, I mean, it must be very hypocritical. You know, a lot of times I'm required to sort of you know pass judgment or say or have an opinion, and actually I don't like hurting people's feelings. No. And I and I, and I get my feelings hurt myself. Yeah. But actually, you know, you've got to toughen up. Uh, two more. Best piece of advice you've ever received or given? Work harder. Um, Jonah Barrington was a squash player and one, one of the gr great sort of fitness uh, guys of, of all time. One of the fittest, one of the fittest people of all time. Um, my accountant and his accountant, um, we, 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 not far from you actually in the Cotswolds, we had the same accountant. I was struggling with my tennis. I was losing in, in three sets a lot. And so I'd go to three sets, play great, and then I'd lose a couple of points at the end. I couldn't work it out. Anyway, I went walking all around Glastonbury Tour and around, you know, that's where he lives, around there. And we went for a lovely walk. We had tea, we had lunch, and I was we're just talking sport and just, you know. And at the end of it all, I said, what do you think? Like a doctor, I was waiting for a diagnosis. And, and he just looked at me and he just said, work harder. <laughs> I like that. Well, jo Jonah was also my squash coach for a while. So, uh, oh, no, mate. yeah, what, a, what an amazing man. What an amazing man. Tough so, animal, right? The guy's a tough animal. Oh, my right? God. He, he, really, he really was. I was about 13, 14, and, uh, yeah, I, was, I played a lot of tennis. I'd switched to squash, took that pretty seriously, and he, he put me through my oh. paces, I tell you. What, what a coach. Well, 
Have you learned to play paddle tennis properly yet? Ah, uh, well, I tell you what, Fraser Fraser Wright is uh, is hopefully going to get me into it. I've had three games in the last six months and absolutely wow. love it. Cause, but great combination of squash and tennis. Um, well, you and I will be playing with uh, with Fraser and, uh, and we'll get some other deadbeat on board for Fraser to play with. <laughs> Sounds like a plan. <laughs> Last but not least, this is a cliche, but it's always quite quite enlightening. I think your top three dinner party guests at the at the castle household. Oh, God. Pa- past past or present? <laughs> well, I would like I, I've mentioned Annie Besant. Mm. Um, top three past uh, past or present? <sighs> Could do it. If you don't mind, I'm going to put Sophia in there as my wife. Yeah. And the reason why is because she is the she's my barometer as to whether I'm behaving or not. Mm-hmm. And 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 if I get kicked under the table, I know that it, it, it's the it's the right thing. I've got a million people. I used to live with a bloke called Nils Larson who was 35 in Wichita in Kansas, and he taught me how to do a lot of things which I can't mention here. But we had lots of good times together. I'd like to see Nils again. Yeah. Um, so that's one. I'd certainly have Sophia. Then he then moved to New York. He's a great guy. Six foot eight of him. I'd have him in there. Um, and a friend of mine's called Mike Slavin, um from from Taunton, who was my my best man. Who yeah. even though we don't see each other year in year out, still love each other. Brilliant. Okay, what a great place to finish, uh, Andrew. Th- thanks so much for joining the podcast and keep well and healthy. It has been an absolute pleasure. Love to you and your family. And um, yeah, nicely done, Ben. Really nice to talk to you properly. Yeah, likewise. See you soon, Ben. Brilliant. Cheers, Andrew. Take care. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, it was absolutely fantastic to get Andrew on the show today and learn more about his incredible versatility, his energy, his enthusiasm. And thanks to everyone for listening. 11 episodes in thank you so much for your loyalty in listening to the podcast and for new listeners joining us along the way soon the response since we launched has been fantastic but 2021 promises some great guests along the way and if you've enjoyed this 11th installment today and you want to see what else is to come then don't forget to subscribe you can do that at apple podcasts spotify or google podcasts do leave us a review and don't forget to follow the podcast on twitter and instagram at athletes tos In the meantime, keep well, keep listening, and goodbye for now.